Welcome to the next episode of Chalk Talk. Today, we're going to take a walk down memory lane as we listen into a conversation between Shockwave co-founder John Adams, the clinical engineer behind the technology, and Dr. Ziad Ali of St. Francis Hospital in Roslyn, New York, who's involved in the early development of the technology. They're going to be speaking to some of the challenges that were overcome, as well as some of the breakthrough moments. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this podcast. Uh, this is going to be a particularly exciting and interesting podcast because I'm joined by John Adams, the brainchild of Shockwave itself. Uh, John uh, was a founder in Shockwave and is a founder in Shockwave, but really uh, was the one who came up with the concept. And this all happened 10 or 11 years ago. So I'm uh, excited, John, to hear about your recollections of it. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ziad Ali. I am the director of the Dematis Cardiovascular Institute at St. Francis Hospital in Roslyn, Long Island. And I was uh, involved at a very, very early stage in Shockwave, but not quite as early as John. John, would you mind introducing yourself and then kicking us off? Sure, I'm John Adams. Uh, I live in Washington State right now and uh, I'm an electrical engineer. I've been involved in medical devices all my life, uh, development of pacemakers and defibrillators and various things as strange as insulin pumps and so on. Uh, so the last 20 years of my career has been in various startup companies, including Shockwave, of course. So John, tell me about the, the spark pardon the pun, what was the spark for Shockwave? What made you think of it? What, what was the, how did it happen? Um, it happened over a uh, partition wall between Daniel Hawkins, the other founder of Shockwave and myself. And we were in an incubator and we were trying to think of a idea around which to start a company. And Daniel was studying patents and things like that. And uh, he um, and was looking for market opportunities. And he came up with the idea that uh, there's a re there really would be an opportunity if we could do something to treat chocolate, uh, to treat uh, calcium in arteries, particularly in the legs, because so many people have difficulty with uh, walking as they get older and he learned, knew that there just wasn't an adequate treatment in that area. And we had been talking about some experiments that I had done years ago at, at Physio Control, where we had done some arcs and sparks. And I'd learned that the shockwave was generated if you did it, if you could perform an arc in, in a fluid. And as we were talking about this market opportunity over the wall, it occurred to us that maybe we could use shock waves to crack the calcium in the arteries. And that was sort of the spark of the idea. So where did it go from there? You know, when you come up with an idea, what, talk to me about some of the logistics. You see, any good startup company needs both parties to bring value. Sounds like you had the electrical engineering background, but Daniel was really studying the business side. Absolutely. Help things move forward. Right. So Daniel, Daniel 
was really good at identifying the opportunity. And when we talked about it, the first challenge was uh, how could we possibly get shockwaves inside a tiny angioplasty balloon? That was, that was our vision. And, you know, if you think about lithotriptors, the shockwave generator in a lithotriptor is basically performed with a very large spark plug. In fact, it even looks like the spark plug in a car, except it's maybe four times as big as that. And lithotriptors use really high currents, you know, hundreds, thousands of amps and really high voltage. And both those things are sort of counterintuitive if you think that you want to do it inside a little tiny angioplasty balloon. So the first thought that I had was, would it ever be possible to get the current we need down a long catheter with a wire that's tiny enough that it would even be practical? I mean, that was, that was the first big question. You know, and I had in mind, we have to have thousands of volts and we need lots of current and we don't have any room. So the first focus was, could it even be possible to do this? You know, to get, to get generate an arc at the end of a catheter uh, and, and have, have it remain small enough to even be realistic. So that was the first experiments that we, that we worked on and in time we found out, well, you know, we could, we could probably do this. Soon after that, another big concern was, this is a little tiny balloon and we're gonna create an explosion inside that balloon. It's just gonna blow the balloon up. I remember this part. <laughs> you know, the idea that you could somehow contain this inside that little angioplasty balloon. And at the time, I didn't know that much about angioplasty balloons, but I knew they were only about a thousandth of an inch thick. And how could that possibly survive what we need to do? Well, again, eventually, after lots of experiments, we found out that it could survive of course, eventually, even it had to survive reliably, and that was a whole other challenge. But uh, we found out that yeah, we could we could do this. Um, but in order to long before we got to that point, we had to convince somebody to give us investment money, and uh, that was quite a challenge because the original invention was made in two thousand eight. And do you remember what happened in the fall of 2008? I certainly do. There was a crash in the stock market and uh, investors were not very interested in pouring money into some crazy new idea like ours. And in fact, we couldn't get funding. We had, we had to close the incubator. We had this, what we thought was a good idea, but we could not get it funded. We couldn't, and, and, the idea basically almost went dormant. We self-funded it for a while and continued to do work in my garage 
and uh, uh, kept it alive until 2011 when we were finally able to raise money. Tell me about um, the involvement in the critical role of Todd Brinton. Uh, Todd came on early and uh, was, of course, our medical advisor. And he did, in fact, I think he connected with you in the, in, when, when, when the time came that we, we needed to know some really specific things about arteries. I think it was Todd that brought you on board. That's right. Uh, to help us understand what could possibly happen when you put put a shockwave in a balloon and put it in a, a nice healthy artery. Uh, one of the perhaps one of the key things that happened in those early days when we were self-funding and so on, we were trying to find a, a good surrogate for calcium so we could determine, you know, is a, is a shockwave that we could produce inside of a balloon, would it actually be strong enough to crack calcium? And that was an important thing. And we felt that we needed to know the answer to that in order to, to ever get funding. The, the reaction we were getting uh, in the beginning was, you, you must be crazy. There's no way this would work. And, uh, so we needed some proof that we could that we could actually crack calcium. And when we originally started, we used chalk as our surrogate. And chalk was just too soft. It was too easy to crack. So it wasn't very convincing. And uh, I happened to have recently returned from Marco Island, Florida. My wife had a collection of seashells and I thought, well, that's that's calcium. Let me let me try that. So it was shocking the seashells and seashells are just too strong. We could not crack them with the shockwaves at all. It, they're, whatever they're made out of, it's they're very tough and it didn't work. And I'm scratching my head trying to think of what we what we could use. And uh, it turns out my wife has chickens and. I was looking at a chicken egg and measured the thickness of the the eggshell and I realized, you know, that's, it's about a millimeter and that's right about what, what we need, you know, uh, to uh, simulate the, the calcium in an artery. So I, I tried uh, delivering arcs to the chicken eggs and again, I wasn't successful because I was using the electrodes on the outside of the egg mm -hmm. and the shell was too strong. The shells, if you think about it, it's, they form a shape kind of like Roman arch and from the outside, they're very strong and the shockwave wouldn't crack the egg. And then I decided, well, let me try it on the inside. And the first couple of times I tried it, I was able to blow really nice holes in the, in the chicken egg. And one thing that happened that was really fortunate is I was first times I first time I did it, I blew the shell away from the egg and the membrane under the eggshell was fully intact. And that was an eureka moment because 
when the membrane was intact and the shell was gone, that told me that the endothelium of the artery could probably survive this and we could crack the calcium on the other side of it without damaging the endothelium. I took a picture of this, this first shell, eggshell, and that picture became, in fact, we joked at the time, we said, this is a million dollar picture. We can raise money with this. And we actually used it to raise money and to, and to teach the concept that we could crack calcium in an artery without hurting the artery. And it was successful. We were able to raise money in 2011. And that was the real beginning of the story. I remember, John, the, um, the lab experiments in Mountain View on a Sunday evening where we'd gotten the eggs and brought in the lithotripter and were shocking these while Todd's daughter was spinning around on a chair and because uh, he, he, she, she didn't have a babysitter. Um, Tom Goff was there. Yes. And uh, we had the egg and we, we, that was the experiment where we saw the egg from the inside, the membrane completely intact and the calcium eggshell cracked. And, and like you said, that was really the eureka moment. Yes. In the background, I'd been approached by Todd Brinton somewhat fortunately because you guys didn't have any money right <laughs> the the person to go to for these things is of course Renu Vermani the sort of guru of vascular biology and um in, in this field but Todd uh knew that I had done a PhD in vascular biology and saw me as the uh, cheaper option uh, hopefully just as good, maybe not, but he approached me and said, can you do some diligence? Because I think at that time, we'd just gone to some angel investors for about $400,000. Yes. And the angel investors on Sand Hill Road said, this is just going to cook the inside of the artery. It's going to end up being just like a laser. And then we're going to end up in the same position where laser was the next best thing and cryotherapy and then it was going to all fall flat in its face and i spent you know a considerable amount of time doing the diligence and i remember conversing with you a lot about the amount of heat that's generated from the arc and the potential um sort of insulation of that heat by the liquid inside the balloon but also by the blood that's constantly flowing past when you come take the balloon off and I, and I remember even back then when we did some bench experiments that the change in temperature was less than 0.1 of a degree Celsius. So it was really very small. And so from a vascular biology point of view, this actually started to make a lot of sense. And then we'd done, I'd done some background research on the impedances of the different uh, tissues and fluids. And turned out the impedances of soft tissue like muscle or, or collagen were actually very, very similar to water. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the wave would travel without a lot of damage through these tissues until it hit something that was magnitudes higher in impedance. And yes. that was the calcium. Right. And, uh, and then the next step that I remember, John, was when we, we, 
ordered in the tibial arteries. So let's talk a little bit about moving on. Once we got a little bit of funding, the question was, how do you prove that this is going to actually work in arteries? Right. Tell us about the tibial artery experiments from your point of view and, and how did you have to make adjustments to the energy? How did you, um, did you have to make adjustments to the, to the engineering to make sure things didn't get pulverized versus cracked? Right. Well, not, uh, my memory here is probably a little foggy, but originally we were using a lithotripter as our energy source that was um, for shocking in the ureter. And uh, that device generated a lot of energy, too much. And um, we, had to, we had to turn it down and use the lower energy settings. And um, eventually we, had, we realized that this was uh, going to be too powerful and we had to make our own generator, which used uh, less energy. I do remember those experiments <laughs> Uh, where we had the arteries in a, in a tank and we were shocking away. And it was just a, a long learning process to fine tune, fine tune the energy, figure out, you know, how big each pulse had to be. And probably one of the things we learned was uh, uh, how often we could deliver the pulse. Like you said, there was a, a small temperature rise with a single pulse, but then when you started to deliver multiple pulses, which we learned that we really needed multiple pulses. Um, and we also learned that we needed to have those pulses, uh, hopefully 360 degrees circumferentially follow, coming off the, the catheter because calcium was 360 degrees. So in that long process of evaluating what was going on we we learned many things and deliver the energy in multiple directions we had to de deliver the energy along the length of the artery it quickly became clear to us that we couldn't rely on one or two sources of shockwave energy and and move the the uh, source along the artery it would just it would take too much time and it would be too tedious for the physicians. We wanted it to be simple. So we had to come up with um, multiple sources along the catheter. And that actually brings up another interesting serendipitous experiment that we did with, uh, with uh, Tom Goff. If you'd like to hear about that, it's kind of a funny story. Absolutely. It turns out when we were shocking in Tom's uh, fish tank, we were using uh, insulated magnet wire as our conduit to carry the electrical energy to the uh, source. And insulated magnet wire is insulated with simply with varnish. And we were shocking away, and we, I don't even remember the exact experiment we were doing, but we were shocking in this tank and we pulled the electrodes out of the tank and 
adjusted something and then we put the electrodes back in the tank and to our surprise instead of getting an arc at the end of the wire we suddenly got arcs along three or four inches of the wire hmm. they were the arcs were were happening not just at the end but along the wire we couldn't figure out what the heck's going on and we realized that when we had removed the wire from the tank, we had bent it enough that we cracked the insulation along, along the length of the wire. And it suddenly occurred to us, wow, we could, with a single wire, provide shock waves that would travel, you know, would, would be linear along the length of the wire. And ultimately from that we ended up developing the multiple electrodes and so on but that was the inspiration is that we didn't need one wire for each source of the shock wave i, I actually didn't know that and that is true <laughs> serendipity like many things in innovation uh serendipity has a lot to do with it absolutely good luck and serendipity is really important <laughs> so on my side at that time john which you probably didn't know the problem was that once you cracked calcium in a cadaver artery how do you see the cracks yes because you can't cut the artery because it's calcified right so what we did was at that time i had was doing a postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford. And for some experiments there that I was doing on calcium, I embedded these arteries into a plasticizing methyl methacrylate resin. Okay. And so then by encasing these into a plasticizing resin, which started off as liquid, the liquid would go in and around the artery into the lumen plasticize and basically become hard as a rock. And then we would actually cut them on a diamond saw that was used to cut diamonds. It's a big old thing. I mean, it, it weighs like probably as much as a car, not quite, but, um, but it's a big heavy thing with these diamond blades on it. And then we would cut through these um, circular methyl methacrylate resin uh, embedded bits and then tr then we'd have to manually sand them down <laughs> because if you tried to look under a microscope they would be like you know 0.2 millimeters thick and you can't look through that in a microscope and so we'd have to sand them down and i remember sanding these things down and seeing the fractures because the whole tibial artery was intact all of its bits but you'd see this crack like sort of right down the middle. And I remember in the very early experience, we were delivering a lot of shocks. Yes. And so there, this, there was, it was more than cracks. It was like a, almost not quite, but like a pulverization. And, um, and then we did, we did some, some in the superficial femoral artery. And I remember the tibial artery experiment was a key experiment because from my recollection, that was the, the catalyst to get us the next round. Yes. Because now it worked not only in an egg, but it worked in an artery and we could prove it. Yes. You, pro you proved it when, 
when we were doing it in Seattle in the uh, in the fish tank, the only thing we could do is we could feel feel the artery and we could feel the calcium. It was all nice and hard. And then after we had shock it, we could feel that it turned gravelly. One of the big problems that I, I recall is that the initial energy would actually burst the balloon. Yeah, and fortunately not always, but enough that it was a problem. Yeah. So how did you tackle that problem from an engineering point of view? One of the things that ultimately they worked on was uh, choosing the right material. Uh, obviously some materials could handle the heat and pressure better than others. So that was one of the things. Um, we also realized that it was important to keep the electrodes as far, far away from the actual bloom material as we could because coming off the electrodes, it was gonna be hot for a short period of time. Um, we, you know, would try to turn the energy down as much as we can and still, and still get effective shocking. That became kind of a, a combination between delaying the time between shocks and keeping the shock small enough by delivering multiple shocks, as you suggested, you can get more cracking performed, but uh, you had, ultimately we had to keep the energy of the shock low enough so that it wouldn't blow a hole in the balloon. And it was a, it was a, a process that involved, you know, material engineers, electrical engineers, mechanical design, quite a long process that that needed to take place before we got a reliable performance in the balloon and and to where we are today, sure. So this might be a good point to share a very interesting experience in Germany with, um, that was shared with me by Todd. So uh, they're in the trial. Um, it's the early feasibility of Disrupt PED3. Oh, sorry, Disrupt PED. And um, they go ahead and prepare a catheter, inflate it, and they're delivering the shocks and nothing, there's no shocks at all. Okay, so the catheter doesn't seem to be working. Patients enrolled in the trial. They take the catheter out, put another catheter in, do it again, turn it on, not working. How can this cat, two catheters not working? They take the third catheter out, put it in blow up the balloon, press the button, nothing happens. And then somehow, and I can't remember exactly how, someone realized that contrast in Germany is non-ionic. <laughs> and so there was nothing to conduct. And simply by diluting the contrast with 50% normal or 0.9% saline, we used the same catheter that we had opened originally and off it went and it started shocking. <laughs> so, I, you know, just an example of how you learn on the job about these things, about how they're working and what are some of the potential caveats. Yeah. 
I thought you were going to say that uh, it was arcing, but not at the end, at the, in the balloon. Uh, in the early days as well, we would occasionally have the arc occur between the wires along the catheter before it gets to the balloon. And if it arcs there, then the, uh, it won't arc with it at the balloon. And that, that was solved with careful choices of insulation and so on. That was one of the early issues that we had to deal with as well. But it would have, it would have manifested itself exactly the same. You plug it in, turn it on, deliver the pulse, and you don't get a shock at, at the balloon. Um, but I did not, I had not heard that story. Yeah, that was an interesting uh, non-ionic contrast in, in, in Germany. Yeah. Um, Eventually, it would have arced if if we had a larger, a longer pulse width. It probably would have arced, but it might have taken a few seconds after the application of the voltage. The ionic solution helps speed that whole process up. Tell me about some of the later years and the iterations, were you still involved in that stage um, or did you become more of a consultant? I, I did become more of a consultant in the company. Uh, I was very involved uh, in the development of the catheters that had multiple electrodes and distributed electrodes along along the catheter that led to the the first uh, peripheral catheter, um, and then the then the company ultimately was uh, moved to California, where there's uh, a lot more engineers that are available with uh, balloon technology, and uh, at that point, and I believe that was 2014, then I became more of a consultant and spent more of my time involved in patent issues than, uh, than in further development. I also remember um, <coughs> some of our first clinical experiences in the disrupt CAD study when we were doing the early feasibility. And in one of the first cases, which actually ended up being in the publication, um, the first publication in Jack Imaging, that I mistakenly had called the what was simply an air bubble inside the balloon a cavitation bubble, um, uh, only to later realize that the cavitation bubble would never ever be that big and it would disappear. But if you go back to that article, I'll have uh, I have um, incorrectly labeled uh, a, a bubble as a cavitation bubble. What is interesting is because of the arc, the bubbles move around. And that right. doesn't happen in normal angioplasty. And so that's why it was a relatively unique thing for us to see at that point. Right. <laughs> so Juan, tell us in the last few minutes, where do you think this technology can go next? Well, the technology uh, obviously can move all around the body and in the arteries, but uh, Probably the one that's the most obvious would be to uh, treat valves, uh, patients that are suffering from aortic stenosis. I think that's 
that's an area that uh, I know uh, can be can be treated. Um, we actually did some cadaver studies, proving that to ourselves way back years ago. Um, but I think the main the main treatment uh, is going to be in patients like me and patients my age uh, who uh, have heavily heavy calcified arteries. I don't know if you know it, Zed, but I've had the treatment twice. I was just going to ask you, because Jonathan Hill is a very close and dear friend. I was going to end off with your experience. So you took the words out of my mouth. So John, I know, and I didn't want to do a HIPAA violation, but since you've uh, uh, declared it, John, you have heavily calcified coronary arteries, and yes. I knew that you flew over to see Jonathan Hill and be treated by the device that you invented. Right, I did, uh, absolutely, and, and uh, it was it was a phenomenal experience. Um, interestingly enough, I've always in in the early days of trying to convince investors that this was safe and so on. I used to ask people to stick their hand in the saline tank and grab the balloon and then we would shock it. And the whole idea was to show them that what it felt like, that it, that it wasn't dangerous, that you could survive vibe it if you put your, put your hand in there. And it felt, it felt like being stung with a rubber band. Yeah. You know, per perfectly tolerable. But in the back of my mind, I always wondered what it would feel like to a patient. And so when I determined, when it was determined that I needed it, and I went to see Dr. Hill in London, one of the things when we were getting ready for the procedure, I asked them to give me light anesthesia because I wanted to see what it felt like. So they did. And uh, they were shocking away, and I was. I could count each each pulse. You know, I knew that okay, I'd get ten, and then there'd be a pause, and so on. But the interesting thing was, I could hear the shocks being delivered through my spine and through the back of my neck. I could hear them, not with my ears, but I could hear them coming into my into my brain from my skull. And uh, it, there was no, no pain, no feeling whatsoever. It absolutely uh, no feeling, but I could hear them. And, and since I knew what was happening, uh, I knew exactly what they were. And uh, they sounded coming up through my spine. They sounded pretty much like they do when you hear them with your ears. But I could tell it wasn't my ears I was hearing it from. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's conductive sound going through your bones and right, right. And uh, uh, it's very distinct and and perfectly acceptable. Well, John, that is the heart of an inventor. A <laughs> uh, part in the pun again, John. I want to thank you tremendously for joining us for this podcast. For me, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was great to see you after all these times and to kind of put together the pieces of the puzzle that sometimes we never got to talk about. Uh, right. You were doing your thing and I was doing my thing and Todd was doing his thing. And so was Daniel. 
but tying it all together into something now, which is helping patients all over the world and is really uh, a, a technology which met a very specific clinical need in a very easy to use way. Yes. And so we all owe you a tremendous amount of thanks and Daniel Hawkins, who is a good friend of mine. Yes. For sitting uh, in that incubator, sticking with it um, through the recession, um, involving me and getting this to the point at which it's uh, really one of the most uh, hottest things in interventional cardiology, but more importantly, just helping patients all over the world. Well, we thank you too for your help. <laughs> Without it, uh, we would have been lost at, at certain points in the program. One other little thing. I had the procedure on a Monday. And uh, I spent the night in the hospital in London, London Bridge Hospital. And uh, I had a follow-up appointment with Dr. Hill on Thursday. So on Wednesday, we were feeling pretty good. My wife and I decided that we would become a, a little bit of a tourist there in London. And so we went over to the, to the London Tower mm -hmm. and uh, walk, was walking around the London Tower doing the typical tourist thing. And we came to the Tower of London and there was a, a doorway and a stairway there that would you could begin the walking tour of the Tower of London and there was a big sign and it said warning this tour includes 213 steps or something like that and we saw that and my wife says "Ooh, maybe we shouldn't do that and I said well I'm feeling pretty good let's do it meanwhile I, I should have, should have said when I came to London we're walking through the airport and everything and people are zooming by me because I was walking at the pace of an old man that had heart disease. And so we were slowly getting through the, the, the airport. But now we're at the London Tower and uh, faced with this challenge. And I thought, well, let's try it. I'll see what we can do. Well, we went in there and I walked up the steps and did the tour and went to the, I think there's four or five floors. I went through the whole tour and had no issues. And after the tour, we walked back uh, to the hotel on the other side of the river. That was just, you know, two days after having lithoplasty on my right coronary artery. Well, uh, that feeling is likely uh, spread to many, many hundreds and thousands of patients. So yes. on top of the technology, it's just a real honor for me to be able to report that back to you as the inventor of this technology. And you think about all the people around the world who get to climb up their London Tower or climb up their stairs or go and see their loved ones. Um, really, that's why we do what we do. And so, yes. again, uh, you know, thank you from all of us, from all the physicians and from all the patients on my behalf. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Chalk Talk. Join us next time as we're going to be sitting down with Professor James Spratt and talking to him about the recent initiative we've launched with him 
called Calcium Masterclass. You can learn more at calciummasterclass.com. In the meantime, look forward to tuning into that episode. Thanks.